This episode contains discussion of alleged child molestation and suicide. Viewer discretion is advised. This week, I'm going to start with the topic that I'm all sure you're all thinking of. Especially when this came out three weeks after we talk about it. Well, there's probably still people thinking about it. And yeah, so by the time this makes it out, the Queen's death will be really old news that we would cover that. And what we will cover, however, is what the Queen's death means for British Andy. I'm sure nobody is familiar with, so even if it's three weeks later, unless it's big news by that time, you never know. British Andy by that point has probably done something to make himself look like an ass, so probably. I would not be surprised if he's in the news for something. <laughs> probably. He really does a lot of ass-like things. It's, it's not easy to find. It's not like headlines like uh, the other. It's not going to be like his mom can just cancel his birthdays in the future now, because his mom's dead. <laughs> Yeah, but she really liked him, apparently. So this article I'm using is from the Daily Mail. However, a lot of news publications were putting out the same kind of material. And it's entitled, What Now for Prince Andrew After the Queen's Death? Thank you for asking the important questions, Daily Mail, specifically on this opener. So why are we talking about British Andy and where does he come from? Well, we covered him in an opener on, oh my, do you know what, what opener we use this on? What episode? gonna go with dinosaur ghosts it was yeah no way <laughs> it was <laughs> it was and the only reason i know that is because i gave my phone to this little child last night and it was queued up on the radio when i turned on my car and it switched to bluetooth this morning and it was talking about british auntie yeah we have a little child who really believes in us and our affinity with dinosaur ghosts and that we can really yeah, make it work favorite episode which we really need you the listener to agree <laughs> with him on it's a good episode i really think it was a about. good episode so go back, listen to Dinosaur Ghost in its entirety, not only for the opener, because it's a good episode about Dinosaur Ghost. Anyhow, Fish Andy is not very well liked and was stripped of his honorary military roles, fired from official duties. His title was revoked amid the U.S. civil case brought against him by Virginia Jufri and his involvement with Jeffrey Epstein. Last time he was seen at any royal event was March 29, 2022, where he escorted his mother into Westminster Abbey for the service of his father, Prince Philip. And people still question why he was there and talking to the press. They're pretty pissed. They don't like regular person Andy. He had no place at the Queen's Platinum Jubilee in June and other things. I'm not going to go through all this. Some places he did have a place, however, didn't show. He said he had COVID and a million other excuses for other things. Oh, I can't sweat. Oh, that's why you're not there. Okay. And there's that little controversy as well. <laughs> but to be frank, who cares where he wasn't allowed? The point is he's not really allowed anywhere, really. Nobody likes him. Now, with all that aside, it is said that the Queen really had a soft spot for regular person Andy. She so lovingly called him, of course. <laughs> and she took comfort in those around her that his civil sex case was settled outside of court in New York, keeping it relatively down low for the monarchy, especially in the year of her Platinum Jubilee. Royal author Phil Dampier told Mail Online, Quote, Prince Andrew will be devastated by the Queen's death because he was always her favorite child. Although he was in disgrace because of his involvement with the Jeffrey Epstein scandal, he still saw more of her in private than his siblings. Living at Royal Lodge was just a short distance from Windsor Castle. He would see her on an almost daily basis. He supported her when she was most frail and was always there for her in person or on the phone whenever she needed him. Or if he needed 20 bucks. Yeah, most importantly of all, because he just kind of lives off her. He seems like the type. Yeah. There is an unbreakable bond between them, and she must have been devastated when his name was dragged through the mud. Only had himself to blame, of course, and it's difficult to feel sympathy for him, but as a mother, she always supported him. So, with all that being said, obviously, the Queen really looked out for him, obviously. She kept him salaried and housed in a Crown estate, paying some of, if not all of, the 13 million paid to settle the lawsuit. But what happens with King Charles III? That still sounds wrong. Yeah. Surely he does not have the same soft spot for regular Andy as his mother did. It's said that both Charles and William present a united front of an attitude towards Andy, that of regret and 
consternation. And this may offer some indication of the road ahead for Andy. Harold resorts that Charles and William are expected to want the aftermath of the Queen's funeral to signal the end of Andrew's public appearances. While the monarch can't take away his dukedom, only the Parliament can. Charles, however, can decide where his relatives get to live and the salary they get. And while we're talking about that, Andrew signed a 75-year lease on the Royal Lodge in 2003 and would probably have to be repaid for the millions of pounds he put into renovations if he were to be evicted. However, it seems before her death, the Queen was supplying the bulk of Andrew's mysterious income from her private duchy, never heard of that word for money, of Lancaster income. So the Queen was an enabler. The most probable outcome for the Duke would appear to be life in the royal wilderness, as they call it. Certain royal experts have speculated that casting Andrew out would do more harm than good, allowing him to embark on projects like writing a book and going back on TV. He was on TV? Yeah, that one time where he sweat. But oh said yeah, that was horrible. <laughs> I would want to keep him away from that too. <laughs> So keeping him quiet and out of the public eye likely works out better for them than setting him loose into the world. As such, he might be staying right where he was. And just one more thing to mention, an incredible amount of people wanting to know what is going to happen to the Queen's precious corgis. And just recently we have found out that they have been left to regular person Andy and his ex-wife for some reason. Not sure why the ex-wife and him are going to share the corgis, but they were left to him and now he's going to take care of them. So there's a huge update on regular person Andy on the opener on this episode. Yeah, my guess is the queen always wanted that relationship to work. So she's concocted a scheme from beyond the grave to bring them together through high antics and the style of a 1980s comedy. Oh yeah, there's no doubt about that. The queen's corgi. You'll see it on like PBS in like three years. Yes, that's the place. With regular person Andy played by, in fact, regular person Andy, because he really needs the cash yeah. at this point. It would be pretty bucks they're paying people. <laughs> that's our update. There's probably not going to be any more to come because no one's going to want to talk about. Now that the queen's out, he's not going to be around anymore. I suspect. And that's that. Okay, with that, let's get into this episode. Unexplained to the mundane. Join us on our journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe, where we put the fringe in Satan, which goes to show you how many silent letters are in fact in the word Satan. I was just going to say, I'm pronouncing it wrong. We are your impeccable spelling host, podcast host, Taylor and Chelsea. Here today, starting off the most eerie of months with a little bit of capers and Halloween know-how to bring us into a festive spirit. We're going to be kicking off this month, slowly progressing to eerier and eerier topics to bring us into Halloween. And today, we are going to start off this festive season with, of course, a little look at Satan. More specifically, his cults on Earth, or more specifically, how there were actually not that many of them on Earth in the 1980s, and people made a big fuss about them, aka the Satanic Panic. Did we actually just need more to fix it? We could have, in fact. Having Satanic cults on Earth at that time actually would have helped a lot. Mm, okay. Purely anecdotal answer to that story, but please stay tuned to actually see <laughs> the rest of the story. Now, I'm sure you're all familiar with the phrase satanic panic. Chelsea, have you heard that before? Yes, I've heard it many a time. Do you actually know what that's referring to? Yeah, it's like people being scared of satanic cults in mundane things. Like Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. Okay, good. Perfect. Everyone was panicking about Satan. <laughs> running amok, challenging them to jumping competitions in Newfoundland. Anyhow, when we're talking about satanic panic, generally what people will be specifically talking about is an era that occurred in the 1980s 
which a lot of allegations by several groups were thrust forth on different parts of society, satanic worship and satanic cults and abuse towards children. I'm going to be focusing on three parts today. It's going to be daycares, Dungeons and Dragons, and music. Daycares. That's actually the part I'm going to start with. Now, why exactly did this pop up in such a weird time, the 1980s? Well, it actually seems like a fairly perfect culmination of several factors. The Wikipedia page on this gives five factors. I believe there are a few more outside of this. It's the idea of the establishment of the fundamentalist Christianity and the founding of political activism of the religious organizations, which was named the Moral Majority. The rise of anti-cult movements, which accused abusive cults of kidnapping and brainwashing children and teens. The appearance of the Church of Satan in the 1960s and really rising to prominence in the 80s. And other explicitly Satanist groups, which added a kernel of truth to the existence of satanic cults, the development of social work or child protection fields, and its struggle to have child sexual abuse recognized as a social problem and a serious crime, and of course the popularization of post-traumatic stress disorder, repressed memories, and corresponding survivor movies. Some of those are kind of weird. Yeah, and it's going to come up very early. The next one that I've also heard added to this as well, the movement to a dual income household and therefore having people have to watch your children who aren't you, which has really pushed towards daycares, other groups having to be in charge of your children. And from a Christian standpoint, having fear about who's influencing your children. Now, this all comes to a head with a book called Michelle Remembers, which was published in 1980. It was written by a Canadian, Michelle Smith, as well as her husband, Lawrence Pazder. Pazder gets really famous off this book. It was written in the form of an autobiography presenting the first modern claim that child abuse was linked to satanic ritual. Pazder was also responsible for coining the term ritual abuse, as we see comes up a lot in these stories. From this book, Pazder developed a higher media profile and gave lectures and training on satanic ritual abuse to law enforcement, and by September of 1990 had acted as a consultant on more than 1,000 satanic ritual abuse cases. Prosecutors would also use Michelle Remembers as a guide when preparing cases against alleged Satanists. What? Yeah. This book, Ridiculous. and like, I, I did not read this book. I have it on hold at the library. I want to read it, but it's just, it's getting into the high demand season, so I don't get it. No. But I can give you a little bit of a synopsis. Michelle, which is Michelle of the Michelle Remembers, documents her repressed, in quotation marks, memories that were recovered during a therapy session under Panzer. Most of the stories involve scenarios that wouldn't feel out of place in a B-grade exploitation movie of the time period. And there are even cameos from Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and Archangel Michael, who all appear to save Michelle from a ritual attended by Satan himself. The Holy Trinity then erases her terrible memories and scars until the time was right. What? This is literally the book. She was involved in satanic cults, rituals, and Jesus came and saved her and then repressed the memory for her because it's too violent. And her husband, who is a psychologist, helped her get those memories back. Oh, because it sounds like she really needed them. Yeah, <laughs> Especially apparently. if Jesus was coming to protect her from them. And this idea of repressed memories like this ends up being huge in this movement. In 2016, Michelle Remembers would be dismissed as absolutely fiction and horror pulp novel full of cheap schlock and outlandish fantasies but when it was first coming out it was accepted as a clinical fact and used as guide by law enforcement courts medical professionals and concerned citizens that's so messed up that they're using it in court and as like law enforcement they weren't even just using that in court the guy who wrote it became the expert witness you would bring in on cases to interview people who were that's abused. pretty messed up and then it gets like debunked as fake it's nice. it was right from the bat but there was a sect of people who were like oh no there's there's satan out there oh lordy he's out there oh my god that's messed yeah. up okay but in the wake of this book coming out and this whole idea we're gonna start with what happens in daycares and we're gonna look at it just this case 
gives you a perfect example of exactly what was brought forth from people. It's called the McMartin trial. And here's the scenario. It's 1983. Judy Johnson, mother of one child living in Manhattan Beach, California. Child is in preschool. He's a young student. And she goes to the police and reports that her son has been sodomized both by her estranged husband and also by a McMartin teacher by the name of Ray Bucky. McMartin is the daycare he's going to. Now, why does she say that? Johnson's belief that her son had been abused began when her son had painful bowel movements. You know, because nothing causes painful bowel movements uh, other than children being sodomized, not a poor low fiber diet that yes. Chelsea can surely attest to in certain scenarios. <laughs> not myself, I eat tons of fiber. <laughs> case anyone's curious. <laughs> Some sources state that at the time Johnson's son denied her suggestion that this preschool teacher had molested him, whereas some also confirm it, that he did say it had. But at the end of the day, that's not really what matters. What matters is that this kid couldn't shit, so his mom said, oh, you must have been sodomized by this teacher. That's pretty messed up that that was the first thing she thought of, too. Yeah. And then Johnson also made several accusations, including that people at the daycare had sexual encounters with animals that, quote, Peggy drilled a child under the arms and, quote, Ray flew in the air. And sorry, when I say Johnson, that's the child. Like, this is what he told the parents once they started, like, questioning him about the satanic stuff happening at this daycare. I'm going to repeat that. Yeah, please. The daycare had sexual encounters with animals that Peggy drilled a child under the arms and that Ray flew in the air. Initially, Ray Bucky was questioned but was not prosecuted due to a lack of evidence and the police sent home a form letter to the students that attend this preschool. It's about 200 in total. And this is what the letter said. Dear parent, this department is conducting a criminal investigation involving child molestation against Ray Bucky, an employee of Virginia McMartin's preschool, who was arrested on September 7th, 1983 by this department. The following procedure is obviously an unpleasant one, but to protect the rights of your children as well as the rights of the accused, this inquiry is necessary for a complete investigation. Records indicate that your child has been or is currently a student Student at the preschool. We are asking your assistance in this continuing investigation. Please question your child to see if he or she has been witness to any crime or if he or she has been a victim. Our investigation indicates that possible criminal acts include oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttock or chest area, and sodomy possibly committed under the pretense of taking a child's temperature. Also, photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Bucky to leave a classroom alone with a child during any nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Bucky tie up a child is important. Please complete this enclosed information form and return it to this department in the enclosed stamped return envelope as soon as possible. We will contact you if circumstances dictate the same. We ask you please keep this investigation strictly confidential because of the nature of the charges and highly emotional effects it could have on our community. Please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside your immediate family and do not contact or discuss the investigation with Raymond Bucky, any member of the accused defendant's family or employees connected with McMartin Preschool. And in all caps, at the very bottom, there is no evidence to indicate that the management of Virginia McMartin's preschool had any knowledge of the situation and no detrimental information concerning the operation of the school has been discovered during the investigation. Also, no other employee in the school is under investigation for any criminal act. Mm. So, kind of messed up for a police department to just say like, oh, we don't really have anything to hold you on, so we're just going to like see if anybody else has said anything at all. There's a lot of things I noticed in there. First of all, that they're just sending a letter that says, please respond and ask your child. They're not getting like child psychologists with something that has to do with sexual assault. Oh, they haven't gotten child psychologists yet. <laughs> They're just like straight out accusing this guy. Yeah. Hey, ask your kid if Ray ever performed oral sex on your child. Like that's yeah. kind of messed up. The preschooler that like, if you say something, they'll be like, yeah, totally. Not just saying like, hey, can you ask your kids if anything weird happens at school? Like, I think that's literally all you need to do. Yeah, pretty much. Anything you feel uncomfortable with. But yeah, that's that's the grips that this satanic panic had had on society at that time. That's so weird. Or at least this police station, which pushed them to do that. With that, they got responses from parents and children. Some of the accusations they describe are less than normal. Quite a few of them overlap with accusations that mirror the emerging satanic ritual abuse panic. Now, in the stories that they hear, it is alleged that in addition to having been sexually abused, some of these children had seen witches 
flying over top of the building. Some of them had traveled in a hot air balloon. <laughs> the kids? Yeah. And some were taken through an underground set of tunnels. This, I was just going to say, this. imagine the stories you get from preschoolers when you say if anything weird has happened in mm -hmm. school. Because, or, you know, Satan-related. Yeah, not even Satan-related. Remember that book you had from kindergarten and you just question all the kids and we would just sit and laugh at how crazy all Oh, yeah, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a Power yeah. Ranger. Yeah, and misses whoever's a boy. Like, they yeah. have no idea what's going on in reality. It gets to the point, like, they're showing these kids pictures of the people that work in the school and saying, like, which one of these people abused you? And they pick out pictures. And from this, Chuck Norris actually ends up being accused as one of the abusers because they mixed in a picture of Chuck Norris. And the kid's like, yeah, that's the one who touched my butt. <laughs> Some of the abuse was alleged to have occurred in secret tunnels beneath the school, and several excavations turned up evidence of old buildings on the site and other debris from the floor the school was built. But no evidence of basic chambers or tunnels was ever found. I can imagine it getting out of hand at this point. Yeah, and there were also claims of orgies at car washes and airports and of children being flushed down toilets to secret rooms where they would or be abused. Yeah. Or preschoolers yeah. accusing orgies and like all of this see i feel like the term orgy was added in to like condense what was being said literally i just assume kids say touched butts a lot and there's like everybody in a car touching butts oh yeah that's like a popular thing to say when you're that age yeah and not to say that like sexual assault is a serious thing it it is not not yeah. that it's not it is, but this just, when you're putting it in this, people who are so susceptible to being led, like preschoolers, and I know how crazy the things that they say are if you give them a little bit of an opening. Hell, like 10-year-olds, like your kids. Oh yeah, it happens there too. <laughs> they do not live in reality. Yeah, just to like add to that, they're saying they were being flushed down toilets to secret rooms where they would be abused, then cleaned up and presented back to their parents. Some child interviewees talked about a game called Naked Movie Star and suggested that they were forcibly photographed nude. However, during trial testimony, some children stated that the Naked Movie Star game was actually a rhyming taunt used to tease other children, where they say, what you say is what you are, you're a naked movie star. Oh yeah, I'm familiar with that And one. had nothing to do with having naked pictures taken. He says, oh God. Judy Johnson, who made these initial allegations, also made bizarre and impossible statements about Ray Bucky, including that he could fly. Again, not the child, Judy Johnson's the mom. Oh, I thought it was the child that originally said that, and she's just believing the No, she fully believes it about her child. Oh my god. So the child said it, and now she's like, he flies. Yeah, she's pushing like, it. Yeah. Though the prosecution asserted Johnson's mental illness was caused by the events of the trial, Johnson had admitted to them that she was mentally ill beforehand. So this mom also does have mental illness. Okay, oh shit. Evidence of Johnson's wow. mental illness was withheld from the defense for three years and when provided was in the form of a sanitized report that excluded Johnson's statements at the order of the prosecution. Would that not be illegal? Like that would be important This is a super messed up case. Oh uh, one God. of the original prosecutors, Glenn Stevens, left the case in protest and stated that the other prosecutors had withheld evidence from the defense, including the information that Johnson's son did not actually identify Ray Bucky in a series of photographs. Oh, was it uh, Chuck Norris? It probably was Chuck Norris, in fact. Stevens also accused Robert Philiboshin, the deputy district attorney on the case, of lying and withholding evidence from the court and defense lawyers in order to keep Bucky in jail and prevent access to exonerating evidence. Like, this is such a messed up case. What ends up coming of this is it lasts seven years in courts and it cost $15 million to the taxpayer. Holy shit. It's considered the longest and most expensive criminal case in the history of the United States legal system to date. This one? Yes. And resulted in no conviction. Well, it doesn't seem like you'd be able to. Seven yeah. years? Who would be on that jury? <laughs> to be fair, I'm assuming there were a lot of mistrials along the way. I had to keep it brief for the purpose of this episode because we're going into several things. Like, it's so messed up. And the McMartin preschool was closed and the 
building was dismantled after this all ended. I would assume it would be closed. Yeah, like you've had so much reputation loss at that point. Oh yeah. Did they sue? You know, do you sue for that? No, you can't because that's a criminal charge. I mean, it doesn't matter. You get a letter home from a daycare saying someone's been accused of sexual assault at a daycare. Like people are going to probably immediately pull all their kids out. Yeah, exactly. And in 2005, I found this one statement. One of the children as an adult made this statement of retracting their allegation of abuse. Never did anyone do anything to me and I never saw them do anything. I said a lot of things that didn't happen. I lied. Anytime I would give them an answer they didn't like, they would ask again and encourage me to give them the answers they were looking for. I felt uncomfortable and a little ashamed that I was being dishonest. But at the same time, being the type of person I was, whatever my parents wanted me to do, I would do. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, at that age, you're so easily susceptible and you don't really have a moral compass. Exactly, yeah. And like, you're just like, oh yeah, no, like this isn't, I don't know if this is hurting anybody. I'm just going to say these things. Yeah, I don't care about these people because I'm three. Yeah, that's one of many daycare, sexual abuse and satanic ritual abuse cases that comes out of this period. That's crazy. Absolutely insane. It is not alone in its own vacuum or bubble. In fact, you might be relieved to hear that it actually is a happy ending compared to a lot of the cases that actually go before the courts that we're going to be talking about a little later. Okay, I was like, how so? But I guess we're going to learn about yeah. it. Yeah, we're going to move on from the daycares and we're going to talk about a little... Um, tabletop adventure game known as Dungeons and Dragons. Now, some of you may not have heard of this game as it is fairly new. It is a um, tabletop role-playing game where you pretend to be something that you are not with somebody telling you how the story is going and therefore dictating your future life and all endeavors, including deaths, curses, sexual assaults, and ritual abuse that may happen in your near future. That, of course, being at least how a 1980s parent may describe Dungeons & Dragons to you. It does not have a good reputation going into the 80s. In 1979, all it is is a fantasy game where you pretend to be something in your mind and discuss how you're going to thwart things or get past problems. As a group, if you're old enough, you drink beer in the bar and make poor decisions as you go. That's it. That's literally Dungeons & Dragons. I have played it for years. I have not committed suicide, nor have I felt that Dungeons & Dragons has pushed me to commit crimes. In fact, I think it prevents you from doing crimes because it prevents you from being cool. Yeah, and wouldn't... This is all people who probably haven't played Dungeons & Dragons that are making all these accusations. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. just wanted to get that straight, that it's not people who play it religiously that yeah. are making these accusations. No, exactly. Now, Gary Gygax created Dungeons and Dragons in the late 70s. There's some pushback. It, it might be an interesting story in the future to talk about issues that they had with the J.R.R. Tolkien's estate when it comes to naming rights for many different creatures that are in the game. But for now, we're just talking about the satanic panic. So we're going to keep it at that. Kids are playing this game and apparently they're being driven to suicide like fairly often. In 1979, a 16-year-old child prodigy, and sorry, this is literally all opinion pieces basically when you hear them describe how these kids are. Yeah. In 1975, a 16-year-old child prodigy, James Dallas Egbert III, disappeared from his room at Michigan State University. A private investigator, William Deere, was hired by James's parents to find their son. Despite apparently knowing little about role-playing games, Deere believed that D&D was the cause of Egbert's disappearance. In truth, it was because of his name, Egbert. Don't ever name your kid Egbert. <laughs> No, it's actually because Egbert suffered from, among other things, depression and drug addiction and had gone into hiding in the utility tunnels under the university during an episode of self-harm. The well-publicized episode, though, referred to as the Steam Tunnel incident prompted a number of works of fiction, including the novel Mazes and Monsters in 1982 and Tom Hanks' film of the same name. In fact, you can find clips of Tom Hanks playing a kid about to commit suicide because he's too involved in Dungeons & Dragons. Pardue, what are you doing? Going to join the Great Hall. You can't, it's a trap. I have spells. I'm going to fly. You don't have enough points. I am the maze controller. Mazeka? Maze controller? Yes. And I have absolute authority in this game. Game? Game. What am I doing here? 
Egbert later dies from a self-inflicted gunshot wound in 1980. Despite the evidence regarding his mental health problems, some activists believe Egbert's suicide was caused by D&D. Doesn't even make sense. And another one, in 1982, high school student Irving Lee Pulling died after shooting himself in the chest, despite an article in the Washington Post at the time commenting how Pulling had trouble fitting in. His mother, Pat Pulling, believed her son's suicide was caused by D&D, and Pat Pulling's actually a huge character here. Her son, Irving, committed suicide by shooting himself in the chest on June 9th, 1982. Irving was active in the role-playing games, and she believed his suicide was directly related to the Dungeons & Dragons game. The grieving mother first filed a wrongful death lawsuit against her son's high school principal, Robert A. Bracey III, holding him as responsible for what she claims was a D&D curse placed upon her son's character shortly before his death. She also filed suit against TSR Inc., who publishes D&D. Again, it was clear that the most complex psychological factors in this scenario were at play. Victoria Rockshirley, a classmate of Irving Pulling, commented that he had a lot of problems anyway that weren't associated with the game, end quote. Despite the court dismissing these cases, Pulling continued her campaign by forming Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons in 1983, which has the initials BAD. Funny enough, she seems to be more worried about what the initials will look like and making sure it looks good. Yeah, well, it's just like mad. Yeah, exactly. Against Dungeons and Dragons. Mothers against, yeah, Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. <laughs> Pulling described D&D as a fantasy role-playing game which fuses demonology, witchcraft, voodoo, murder, rape, blasphemy, suicide, assassinations, insanity, sex, perversion, homosexuality, prostitution, satanic-type rituals, gambling, barbarism, cannibalism, sadism, desecration, demon summoning, necromantics, divination, and other teachings. I really need to take a, a second here and say she threw in homosexuality with literally everything else that's terrible and illegal it's a time period to do that i mean yeah it, it definitely <laughs> it's and not sorry, out of sorry about the prostitution as well because we're yeah. talking about a, a made-up game and they're blaming it on you yeah. know suicides and stuff like that so might as well throw it in there i mean it's not yeah really but it's just yeah it might come up in a bit. I'll get to it when we get to and it. And if anything, with all these things that these people are battling, which is most likely depression and drug abuse and stuff from at least what you were just saying, they're probably using D&D as an escape of some sort. If they're battling depression or something like that and they're having a hard time, it's probably helping them. Well, not in the instance where they actually committed suicide, but it was probably some sort of escape. You bring up a good point where they're actually probably trying to also hide the fact that they're using it as escape from their family which is just adding stress to it because your family is going to be worried that they're practicing satanic rituals. Oh God, yeah. that Yeah, that's another so good point. So not only is it just like you're one of few escapes from society, it's something that your family would disown you over as well or take away from you as, a, as an escape. Yeah, a stupid game. Should yeah. they ever find it. Yeah, okay. So Pat and Bad... <laughs> launched an intensive media campaign through conservative Christian outlets, as well as mainstream media, including an appearance on 60 Minutes opposite Gary Gygax. And that's the first clip, Chelsea, I put in the general chat that I want you to show to us. D&D, and it's become popular with children anywhere from grammar school on up. Not so with a lot of adults who think it's been connected to a number of suicides and murders. The idea of the game, which is played by highly imaginative and intelligent kids, is to assume the role of one of the characters. One game can go on for weeks or even months. The problem seems to be that some kids take it more seriously than others, take it a step further, playing a character who brings them the power in a game they couldn't possibly get in real life. There are those who are fearful that the game in the hands of vulnerable kids could do harm. And there is evidence that seems to support that view. Timothy Grice, 21, a shotgun suicide. The detective report noted D&D became a reality. Irving Bink Pulling, 16, an avid D&D player, a suicide. Daniel and Stephen Irwin, 16 and 12, a murder and a suicide. The police said they were obsessed with the game. James Allen Kirby, 14 years old, charged with killing his junior high school principal and wounding three other people. Police are blaming D&D. Jeffrey Jaklovich, 14. Stephen Loyacano, 16. Michael Dempsey, 17. And the list goes on. 
The company that makes the Dungeons and Dragons material is TSR Incorporated of Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. They estimate there are three to four million kids who play the game. Last year, they grossed nearly $30 million with Dungeons and Dragons books and paraphernalia accounting for most of those sales. Gary Gygax owns the company and invented the game. Dieter Sturm is the head of public relations. There are a number of cases that have been documented where there is some connection between D&D. &D. I'm not saying that D&D &D is the cause of the death, but paraphernalia from the game has been found at the scene of the death. Notes, suicide notes referring to the game have been found, and all of these people, in a dozen or so cases, have been documented as avid D&D players. So he said D&D paraphernalia found at the scene of the death mm. is very deceptive way of saying these kids committed suicide in their bedroom. Ah, that is an incredibly deceptive way because there's probably a million other things that could be found there. It's kind of like saying owning a bed leads to suicide. I love the sway. I mean, that's such a sad thing, but I love the swag of the owner of the creator of Dungeon and Dragons. Look at him. First off, he uses a fantastic sweater. That is a sweater that adds plus three charisma. Yeah. Second off, just wait until he actually talks. Like, this guy does not take the guff. Good on him for what he says here. Okay, I like this. Okay, let's go. And you see no connection whatsoever? We see no connection for the fact that right now, there's some three to four million players of the game uh, actively throughout the United States. Uh, right at this particular time, uh, 1985, teenage suicide is, is epidemic across the country with some 5,000 kids a year now taking their lives. Um, I think that uh, to say that uh, because that child uh, played Dungeons & Dragons, uh, who's to say that that child does not watch television, does not participate in, in high school sports or what per se? I have yet to see one bit of valid clinical evidence to show that this has been anything more than coincidental with a disturbed child. If you found 12 kids in murder-suicide with, with one connecting factor in each of them, wouldn't you question it? And that's all people would do. I would certainly do it in a scientific manner, and this is as unscientific as you can get. It's nothing but a witch hunt. Oh, Jesus. This is crazy. That's so stupid. There's probably more than one connecting factor in all of them. Yeah. All teenagers. Yeah. But uh, Pat Pulling's the one here that's next, the one who started bad. Their 12-year-old daughter's in the background okay. here. But the families who have suffered the loss of a loved one would disagree. Pat and Lee Pulling and their 12-year-old daughter, Melissa. The Pullings came home one night three years ago and found Bink, their son, dead on the front lawn of their home in Montpelier, Virginia. He had shot himself through the heart with his father's handgun. Until that night, they had never heard of the game Dungeons & Dragons. Then they began looking through his things. We went into the kitchen, and there on the table were the, what we thought were just regular composition books with schoolwork in it, and much of the Dungeons and Dragons material, along with this curse he had received in the game that day that he died. Um, the curse the that was placed on Bink's D&D character began, Your soul is mine. I choose the time. In a letter that he left, Bink said he had been summoned to kill himself because he was evil. It was obvious through his writings that he felt he had assumed this character. But what I couldn't get into my mind was, is it possible? How could anybody do that? How could a 16-year-old that is smart, intelligent, why would they believe that they were something in a game? And why would they kill themselves because somebody else said to do it? Your son was well-adjusted? Always. He had never had psychological problems. He was healthy, even physically healthy. Well, we found that uh, uh, there's been numerous parents who say that uh, uh, the child's had no problems and such. Uh, very conclusively, we go back to details of uh, reports of classmates, of teachers, of friends and such, who very much uh, uh, kind of show that the youngster didn't fit in to school. Uh, he had outside problems and generally problems with his family. We know that in the case of Dungeons and Dragons, upwards of three million kids play the game with no apparent serious consequence. That for them, it exercises the imagination and is just good fun. But there are those who are afraid that impressionable, vulnerable kids could be harmed by it. Is there Dr. Thomas Rodecki is a psychiatrist who teaches at the University of Illinois Medical School 
and who is chairman of the National Coalition on Television Violence. He has been studying the game for several years and says there are 28 deaths related to Dungeons and Dragons in the last five years. In some of those, it was clearly the decisive element. In other ones, it was just a major element in the thinking of the people at the time they committed suicide or, or murder. It's not coincidence, not when you have careful documentation, you have careful notes, you have eyewitnesses. For instance, one case, the parents were actually saw their child summon uh, Dungeons and Dragons demons into his room before he killed himself. Another case, the kid had thought he had the ability to astral travel, coming from the D Dungeons and Dragons game, that he could leave his body and come back. And he had rigged it up just according to the rule book so he could do it. He was surrounded by his materials and put a bullet in his head so he could leave his body, and he's never come back. This is make-believe, and nobody's murdered, and there's no violence there. I mean, uh, to, to use an analogy with another game, who is bankrupted by losing a game of Monopoly? Nobody is, because the money is make-believe, the property is make-believe, and the bankruptcy is make-believe. It is not like Monopoly. There is no board. It is role-playing, which is typically used for behavior modification. If you are using behavior modification, and you are doing violent roles, and you're doing negative roles continuously, these children not only begin to have violent dreams or violent thoughts or negative depressing type things, they become very much a part of this character. Melissa claimed that D&D &D had become more than just a game for her brother Bink. Someone it's threatened right. you? Yes. My brother threatened to kill me one time. And we found her later that uh, he had threatened to kill her if uh, she told uh, us that he was playing the game. She knew it and she was actually scared for her life. I just also want to make a note. It is not uncommon for children, especially siblings, to say, if you tell mom and dad about this, I will kill you. Yeah, I believe I said that to you every single day in our childhood. Yes. <laughs> and I have survived so far, as far as I know. I, just to give you an idea of like what that time was like, and that wasn't just some like small town investigation. That was 60 Minutes. That went out to everyone in the U.S. in 1985. I mean, media is a fun thing. They really put it in your head for something. And dare I say, there were almost as many people watching that episode of 60 Minutes as there were Dungeons and Dragons players in the United States that year. And likely more people committed suicide that have the connecting factor that they watched 60 Minutes. There's probably more. Oh my gosh, amazing how they can make it work for them. <laughs> yeah, a few more that they talk about a lot. In 1985, John Quigley of Lakeview Full Gospel Fellowship spoke for many opponents when he claimed, the game is an occult tool that opens up young people to influence or possession by demons. So of course, bothered about Dungeons and Dragons bad, historically dealt a major flow to Dungeons and Dragons and prevented it from going on to a tabletop game that would be played by tens of millions of people worldwide for the next decades and decades and decades and would drive Gary Gygax into poverty and suicide, of course. Just kidding, of course, D&D survives in 1994 bad dissolves, mostly due to Pat pulling dying of the real Satan, cancer, lung cancer, and having no real driver from that point. And just to give you an idea, studies from the American Association of Suicidology, the US Center for Disease Control, and Health and Welfare Canada all found there's no causal link between D&D and suicide. And in fact, if you play Dungeons and Dragons, you actually have a lower suicide rate than the rest of the population. Oh, it's not listed on their website that that's the number one cause of suicide? No, in fact, it's actually something that can be used to both foster a better dealing with other people, reasoning skills, community, less aggression, community, Belonging. yeah. But that of course means it's just generally accepted with the population as a whole, no. In fact, while I was at law school, I was told by at least one individual that it's surprising you play D&D with its connections to Satanism. <laughs> Which I found hilarious because that was in 2014. And as most recent as 2010, the United States Court of Appeal for the Seventh Circuit upheld a ban on playing Dungeons and Dragons by the Wapen Correctional Facility. 
Captain Moraski, the Institute's gang specialist, testified that D&D can, quote, foster an inmate's obsession with escaping from real life correctional environment huh? and fostering hostility, violence, and escape behavior. Interesting. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I can't believe that. I don't know. But you know what else is crazy? Now what? How they treated music in the 1980s, which it's I, everything. this is going to be fun. Yeah. 1970s, of course, give rise to what's commonly referred to as heavy metal music. Black Sabbath being the first heavy metal band and Ozzy Osbourne being associated with it. And that giving rise to what the 1980s really being the zenith for metal to spawn. However, that led to a fear that heavy metal contained lyrics which encouraged people to do bad things. And it was never more prevalent than in 1985 when 20-year-old James Vance tried to sue Judas Priest. After a night of partying, James Vance and his friend, 18-year-old Raymond Belknap, headed to a local playground and shot themselves. Belknap wouldn't survive the incident, but Vance would, and he went on to file a lawsuit against Judas Priest as he claimed the subliminal messaging within their stained glass album drove them to this act. Oh, Lord. Ultimately, the band and their record label would avoid any legal responsibility for the tragedy, but not even empirical evidence was enough to convince concerned parents and moral campaigners that subliminal messages promoting suicide and devil worship weren't possessing the heavy metal records kids were listening to. In 1985, a committee known as the Parents Music Resource Center, spearheaded by Tipper Gore, made up a playlist of songs they deemed inappropriate for consumption. The list of the Filthy 15 was used to serve as a template for proposed legislation regarding how albums should be rated, suggesting that they could come with an extra warning if the contents pertain to sex, violence, drugs, alcohol, or the occult. And I just love, this is their list of 15 songs. Just some of the songs. It's probably that. a pretty good list of like some really good songs. Judas Priest, Eat Me Alive, Motley Crue's Bastard, ACDC's Let Me Put My Love Into You, Twisted Sisters, We're Not Gonna Take It, Wasp's <laughs> Animal, Def Leppard's High and Dry, Merciful Fates, Into the Coven, Black Sabbath's Thrashed, and Venom's Possessed. <laughs> And this came from a heavy metal blog that I was reading. They said, it's funny, they have ACDC on there and it's let me put my love into you when they also have Highway to Hell and Hell's Bells. And they're just like, no, those are good. Those are about driving and and Christian bells if up in towers. There's only so I don't room see for 15. <laughs> if there's anything more scary than Satan in the occult, it's sex. Yeah. So let my put my love into you is the one that makes the list. Exactly. <laughs> so anyhow, this group actually gets before the Senate of the United States. Like the highest, basically one of the biggest groups in the country that can enact legislation. PMRC gets before the Senate and they have a hearing. They invite people from both sides of this argument to come speak in front of the Senate members and give their side of the story, which leads to one of the funniest sights you'll ever see. And it is, of course, Dee Snyder, who is famous from being the lead singer of Twisted Sister, presenting before the Senate. Mr. Snyder, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me here. I don't know if it's morning or afternoon, but I'll say both. Good morning and good afternoon. My name is Dee Snyder, that's S-N-I-D-E-R. I have been asked to come here to present my views on, quote, the subject of the content of certain sound recordings and suggestions that recording packages be labeled to provide a warning to prospective purchasers of sexually explicit or other potentially offensive content, unquote. Before I get into that, I'd like to tell the committee a little bit about myself. I'm 30 years old. I'm married. I have a three-year-old son. I was born and raised a Christian and I still adhere to those principles. Believe it or not, I do not drink, I do not smoke, and I do not do drugs. I do play in and write the songs for a rock and roll band named Twisted Sister that is classified as heavy metal. And I pride myself on writing songs that are consistent with my above mentioned beliefs. There are many facets to this complex issue and time does not permit me to address all of them. However, my feelings are expressed for the most part by the August 8, 1985 letter to the Parents Music Resource Center from Mr. Stanley Gordikoff, President of the Recording Industry Association of America. This letter was a formal response to the PMRC's petition of the RIAA. 
The only part of this document I do not support is Mr. Gordikoff's unnecessary and unfortunate decision to agree to a so-called generic label on some selected records. In my opinion, this should be retracted. Since I seem to be the only person addressing this committee today who has been a direct target of accusations from the presumably responsible PMRC, I would like to use this occasion to speak on a more personal note and show just how unfair the whole concept of lyrical interpretation and judgment can be and how many times this can amount to little more than character assassination. I have taken the liberty of distributing to you material and lyrics pertaining to these accusations there were three attacks in particular which I would like to address. Accusation number one. This attack was contained in an article written by Tipper Gore, which was given the form of a full page in my hometown newspaper on Long Island. In this article, Ms. Gore claimed that one of my songs, Under the Blade, had lyrics encouraging sadomasochism, bondage, and rape. The lyrics she quoted have absolutely nothing to do with these topics. On the contrary, the words in question are about surgery and the fear that it instills in people. Furthermore, the reader of this article is led to believe that the three lines she quotes go together in the song, when as you can see from reading the lyrics, the first two lines she cites are an edited phrase from the second verse, and the third line is a misquote of a line from the chorus. That the writer could misquote me is curious, since we make it a point to print all our lyrics on the inner sleeve of every album. As the creator of Under the Blade, I can say categorically that the only sadomasochism, bondage, and rape in this song is in the mind of Ms. Gore. Accusation number two. The PMRC has made, a public, made public a list of 15 of what they feel are some of the most blatant songs lyrically. On this list is our song, We're Not Gonna Take It, upon which has been stowed a V rating indicating violent lyrical content. You'll note from the lyrics before you that there is absolutely no violence of any type either sung about or implied anywhere in the song. Now, it strikes me that the PMRC may have confused our video presentation for this song with the meaning of the lyrics. It's no secret that videos often depict storylines completely unrelated to the lyrics of the song they accompany. The video for We're Not Gonna Take It was simply meant to be a cartoon with human actors playing variations on the Roadrunner Wild E. Coyote theme. Each stunt was selected from my extensive personal collection of cartoons. You'll note when you watch the entire video that after each catastrophe our villain suffers through, in the next sequence he reappears unharmed by any previous attack, no worse for the wear. By the way, I'm very pleased to note that the United Way of America has been granted a request to use portions of our We're Not Gonna Take It video in a program they are producing on the subject of the changing American family. They asked for it because of its, yeah. They asked for it because of its, quote, light-hearted way of talking about communicating with teenagers, unquote. It is gratifying that an organization as respected as the United Way of America appreciates where we're coming from. I've included a copy of the United Way's request as part of my written testimony. Thank you, United Way. Certainly did a good job on himself there. Especially being the only guy in that entire group not wearing a suit and just showing up and just like nothing but the best of 80s hair metal paraphernalia. Yeah. Also appearing in the PMRC hearing at the Senate was Frank Zappa, who unfortunately did show up in a suit and tie. Strangely enough, John Denver, of all people, I didn't watch it. I just saw it on the side while I was looking at these videos that John Denver said some things to. No idea if he was for or against. My guess is his music was seen as wholesome, so he would be okay with that. Oh yeah, he didn't make the list. So that's his response to it. There, there are some other responses too as well to the declarations of the Filthy 15. King Diamond, who was the personification of satanic metal in the 1980s and was a card-carrying member of the Church of Satan. He specifically wrote music with lyrics heavily influenced by horror films and the occult. So were Venoms, the another band in there. Neither artist took the PMRC seriously and they said they appreciated the publicity and Venom jokingly said that they weren't looking hard enough if they thought that that was 
was the most offensive Venom song out there that made the Filthy 15. And in fact, a quote from Sam Dunn of Venom in a, in a documentary in 2012, that just sounds lazy to me. That sounds like nobody's listening enough to Venom to find the worst song. <laughs> but in the end, what ends up coming from this actually is the parental advisory stickers that are on uh, many albums that most teenagers want. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, that's where they come from. That's disappointing. That's the, the end, really, or at least where we get to with satanic panic in the music industry from that. Literally, the parental advisory sticker is still found everywhere on albums. That just means Although, it's a good nobody album. buys albums anymore, and I don't know if they have that sticker on Spotify, do they? I don't know, because we put explicit on ours, so it probably does somewhere. Yeah, yeah but that's like a self-reporting thing. Like, I, we can't slap, we could slap that sticker on or we couldn't. Yeah, we could take it off, too. I don't know. Not that I've ever paid attention to, but it's not like I'm out there looking for it. By the mid-1980s, Satanic Panic had reached its peak. There were classes aimed at law enforcement authorities and taught mostly by other cops, therapists, and preachers, and by born-again Christians claiming to be former high priests or escapees from unspeakably sadistic ritual torture cults. This does end up coming to an end in about 1992, when the Justice Department thoroughly debunks the myth of Satanic ritual abuse cults. Oh my god. Yeah, they come out with a very thorough statement and explanation about basically everything that had come out in the 1980s. Thankfully, we grew up in that era and got to do some of these terrible things that apparently are satanic ritual abuses. Thank god. But it didn't necessarily go away with it. Though the accusation of satanically motivated child abuse rituals had pretty much died by the mid-1990s, you can find videos like the one that Chelsea's now going to show us that came from 1994. Oh, the guy with the good hair. There's two different communities that use this park. Uh, one is the uh, pagan or occultic community, and the other community is, of course, the homosexual community. Interestingly enough, uh, they go hand in hand. And so, well, see, here you go. Uh, upon entering the park, I mean, you can see they've already got started. Uh, okay. This is a pentacle. The interesting thing about this pentacle is it's an upright pentacle. This is not a satanic pentacle. Now, the reason why this pentacle would not be considered satanic is because it has one point up. Now, Satanists would reverse this star, or pentacle as it's called, and have two points up. Those represent uh, the horns of Baphomet uh, and or the horns of Satan. I just want to make a note that I really think this guy spray painted this. I was just gonna accuse him of that as well. On that, yeah. But he didn't have the guts to do it upside down in fear of summoning Satan. I feel like that as well. That was the distinct feeling I got from it. And plus, he's calling it a pentacle. <laughs> yeah. Is that what you call it? I, I call it a pentagram. Yes, but uh, maybe. I don't same. know. I would never call it. This is 1994. <laughs> They call what he's got right there a good haircut, apparently, in 1994. Yeah, it is. Look at that. Party in the back is hanging on by a thread. <laughs> yeah, but now, right over here, I can see on a tree here, there's a there's a uh, inverted cross. Now, this is satanic. This is a very generic symbol. Let me see. It's, well, it's actually fairly fresh, too. <laughs> she fucking did it. <laughs> We just missed the bastards. <laughs> so <laughs> he says with white paint on his hands and pants. <laughs> so he spray paints the first pentacle that's right side up and then goes to the other tree and does an upside down cross. Like who in their right mind would actually go to a park and do one that's not Satan and then go to the other tree and do an upside down cross? Well, no, funny enough. Technically, an upside-down cross is also a very Christian symbol. Right, you've told me about this. Yeah, and it's on the Pope's, I believe it's on the Pope's throne. I might have to correct that if I'm wrong, but it's the symbol of Pope Peter, the first Pope, because when he was murdered, or sorry, sentenced to death, he was sentenced to crucifixion, but he did not feel that he was deserving of the same death as Jesus, so he was crucified upside down, thereby having the symbol of the upside down cross. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and then it got, you know, really... Bastardized, bastardized. but at the same Probably time, it's guy. not technically, yeah. I feel like this is probably where it originated. <laughs> fucking haircut. See, he's making shit up. It's fresh. 
It's weird how fresh all this stuff is. <laughs> this year, of course, is a, a bastardization of Christianity, and it's a very common symbol. Obviously, they probably had a party or, or a ritual here uh, within the past night or two. Uh, usually what they'll do is they'll mark, it's almost like a path. They'll mark a path to kind of show you where the action's at. Uh, the colors they'll use will be white, red, and black. Those are the dominant uh, colors of uh, the satanic movement. And uh, basically, well, okay, over here, see? Here you go. This, well, see, this is, this is what I'm talking about. Okay, uh, what you're looking at here is called Voodoo Vivi. Um, this is kind of like a coat of arms, if you will, uh, for the demonic. And uh, the implications of this is definitely satanic. Uh, when I showed you earlier the one pointed up star as we first came in, and I told you that you know the implications of Satanism are two points up, as you can see, there are two points up here, and someone has made it very clear uh, they were probably worshiping Set, because it, it says Set here, so it's pretty obvious. Now, this here, if I'm not mistaken, uh, looks like a money BB. So I wouldn't be surprised if they were here in the park doing a money ritual. And uh, this is very typical. This is the kind of thing that you can expect to see uh, not only on crime scenes, but in areas where occultists hang out. Like gang graffiti, occultists kind of communicate to each other through their graffiti. On the rise there up here is, is a very flat area, concrete area, uh, that is used often. I even frequented it uh, for ritual practice. Well, there you go. You can see from here, um, 666 and an I. Keep in mind, again, this is to train police officers. This? Yeah, to watch out for satanic rituals. It's the same way fucking paint. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually quite proud of this one. <laughs> Does that say 666? <laughs> you can end it there. This is a different world, is it not? Oh yeah. Like and you just know. I mean, this is what is this? This is the 80s. So this is No, this is 94. 90s. I was just going to say this almost seems like it's coming from the same time frame of like reefer madness. <laughs> when you can say I know. anything against it and everyone's like this is outraging. <laughs> I can't believe this is going on with their white fresh paint. <laughs> this guy just wouldn't he be if it wasn't him that did it? You can bet your ass that he would have been terrified to be in that park. Oh, God, yeah. He would have taken his temper. You know what? I bet he took three karate classes and he's good to go. Like, this is the 90s. Like he, It's the peak no, of ninja he culture. he so terrified of satanic panic that he would have not gone any further if it wasn't him that did all this artwork. But yeah, this dies down in the early 90s. That That's a remnant of it. So, no harm, no foul. Satanic panic dies out, right? Well, we're gonna go over a few stories, but that's not necessarily the case. In 1984, Cuban immigrant Frank Fuster was accused, along with his undocumented wife, of molesting eight children. Despite coercive interview sessions and a lack of physical evidence, Fuster was sentenced to six consecutive life terms, or a minimum of of 165 years in prison. As of 2021, he has been in prison for 35 years and he will not be eligible for parole until 2134. He reportedly had no legal representation. Oh no. North Carolina inmate Patrick Figured, right now 72, still serving time for a 1992 conviction due to coerced allegations of ritualistic abuse. And Joseph Allen, 63, has been serving time in Ohio since 1994 for a highly bizarre case in which he was convicted of ritualistic child abuse along with another woman, even though the two had never even met. However, she was later exonerated. And in two out of three of those, you just said coerced. Yeah. One Florida school principal spent 21 years in prison after being convicted on a false satanic ritualistic assault claim. He was released at the age of 80 after and ordered to move to another country. In El Paso, two preschool owners each spent 21 years in prison. And in 1984, three members of the Amarup family of Malden, Massachusetts, were convicted of false child molestation charges following yet another pattern of false memory coercion from children. 
Two of the defendants spent 10 and 20 years in prison before being paroled in 1999 and 2004 respectively. The third defendant died of cancer in prison before her conviction could be overturned. She was exonerated in 1998, the year she died. Year after she died, sorry. What a terrifying time to be alive. In 1997, four lesbian women who became known as the San Antonio Four were targeted and wrongly convicted for child molestation claims. Their trial played out against a resurgence of satanic panic tied to homophobia in a conservative state, and their fight for justice lasted nearly two decades. All four women spent 15 years in prison before having convictions overturned in 2015. Wow. And ultimately expunged in 2018. And one of the most famous, the West Memphis Three. In 1993, three teenagers in West Memphis, Arkansas, were accused and convicted of sexual assaults and murders of three young boys. The teens were accused and primarily based on hearsay surrounding their, quote, goth lifestyle and rumors that they worship Satan, despite a lack of any physical evidence. There's a documentary on this called Paradise Lost, and it publicized the case. And because of that, the three men were ultimately freed in 2011, after new DNA evidence showed them to have no connection to the killing at all. Oh my God. And they entered Alfred Pleas, which commuted their sentences to time served in 18 years in prison each, being released in 2011. Wow. It was a wild time for sure. A wild time so much, in fact, that there is one thing I want to talk about, and that is the Finders Cult. But we're out of time, and it's going to have to be saved for another Halloween. I'm going to add it right now. Okay, good. Because what if it wasn't all just media frenzy? What if there was something to these child abuse and SRA claims? Now, we're going to have to wait on that one until another time. For now, I have been Taylor here with Chelsea. We are Journey to the Fringe. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes, or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh